to Crime Sesh. I'm your host, Leah, and I just wanted to say before we get into today's case, thank you so much for the support on the second episode and the first one. I can't tell you guys how much it means to me. It just means the world to me. Also, don't forget that we have a Google request form in our Instagram bio. Our Instagram is Crime Sesh Pod, so please feel free to request any cases. And another update, I'm trying out a new logo. Let me know how you like it. The next one, I'll probably have a different logo because I'm going to try out both of them just to get a feel on which one I like best. A little heads up, in today's case, we will be talking about rape, specifically in children. Just wanted to give you guys a little forewarning before we get into today's case. Mr. Cruel was an Australian serial child rapist who shook up the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, and he has never been identified, but there are three confirmed Mr. Cruel attacks. Currently, the reward amount for any information that could lead to an arrest or to solve these attacks is set at $1.2 million Australian dollars, which is equivalent to $891,108 American dollars. When police would talk about Mr. Cruel, they often described him as highly intelligent, and they said he would actually carefully plan out each of one of his attacks, which this is also known as the routine activity theory, which we learned about this in my criminology class recently. Basically, that people that have routines are more likely to be susceptible to being a victim because they do the same thing every day and criminals can just watch them and get their routine down pat and just end up stalking them, following them, you know the deal. Continuing on, Mr. Cruel would leave behind no forensic traces. He always protected his identity by keeping his face covered and he would leave red herrings, which... For you guys that don't know, red herrings are basically little distractions, but it's said that he would leave these to divert law enforcement and the families of the victims. Mr. Cruel's first attack was on August 22nd, 1987 in Lower Plenty, Australia. Lower Plenty is about 2.7 square miles and it is about 9 miles northeast of Melbourne's central business district. Lower Plenty also has a relatively very low crime rate. At 4 a.m. on August 22nd, Mr. Cruel, with a black balaclava on to keep his identity hidden, broke into a home after removing a window pane. He was armed with a black handgun and a kitchen knife. He entered the parents' room first, where he proceeded to blindfold, handcuff, gag them with some surgical tape he brought with him, and then tied them up, then forced them into their closet. He tied the parents up with a knot that was mostly used by sailors or someone that had previous nautical experience. He then decided to make his way down the hall to the little boy's room, who was around six to eight years old. He was awoken by the attacker, but luckily he was left relatively unharmed. Um, He was blindfolded and gagged as well and then tied to his bed. After this, he then made his way to the daughter's room, who was just 10 years old. Unfortunately, she did get the worst of the attack. For the next two hours, she would be raped on and off by the attacker, while he also took breaks in between, and some said he would even take time to make a meal in between him torturing this little girl. After these dreadfully long two hours, the attacker left leaving with a small box of classical records and a blue jacket that he stole from the family. The police were called, and they came to investigate. Law enforcement officers were basically at a loss with how to continue with this case. The family didn't really have any enemies, and this attack seemingly literally came out of nowhere. And in the late 1980s, Melbourne was actually known for being the most livable city in the world. As details were coming out about this case, the 10-year-old daughter that was attacked told the police that while the attacker was still in the house, he made a phone call from the family's house phone. And this call was 
to someone that the attacker referred to as Bozo, and the call seemed to be a threatening one. He told Bozo that if he didn't move his children, that they would be next. And law enforcement searched into the family's phone records from that night, but it came up that no call had even been placed from the family's home. And this is believed to be a little red herring that Mr. Cruel left. December 27th, 1988, in Ringwood, Mr. Cruel acted on his second attack. At 5.30 a.m., he broke into the home of John and Julie Wills on Hillcrest Avenue. He came equipped with a handgun and a kitchen knife yet again, and it is said that John was awoken to a gun pressed against his temple and the masked figure saying, Don't be a hero. The attacker then demanded John and Julie onto the ground and for them to lay on their stomachs. He then began to tie their wrists and ankles together with what was said to be a copper wire. And it is said that he used the same kind of knot he used in the first attack. He then blindfolded them and gagged them as well. He began cutting their phone lines as he made his way through the house. He eventually made his way to 10-year-old Sharon Wills' bedroom, where he woke her up, gathered some clothes for her, and fled from the scene, bringing Sharon along. John and Julie broke free from the restraints about 15 minutes later, and this is when they realized Sharon was missing. Seeing as the attacker had cut their phone lines, John ran to the closest neighbor's house to call the police, and John then began to search the neighborhood, but it was too late. Little Sharon was already gone, and so was the attacker. Mr. Cruel drove Sharon to an unknown location where her attacker assaulted, bathed, and fed her. He had her confined and leashed to a bed with what was said to be a neck brace. It is said she was fed a Vegemite sandwich and she was given lemonade and milk to drink. Like I said, he bathed her, including clipping her fingernails, toenails, and brushing and flossing her teeth. Sharon was luckily found 18 hours later at Bayswater High School and she was found dressed in a green garbage bag. Sharon was blindfolded her entire attack, so she couldn't give a description of the man. But it is said from what I read that she did describe him as being gentle and soft-spoken. And I'm not sure if that is actually true, but that is what one article did say. Law enforcement connected this attack with the one in Lower Plenty. It is said that in the following weeks and months after the attack, the Wills family, very understandably, would often sleep in the living room together and they got a security system installed. It is also said that they were gifted a golden retriever to act as a guard dog. John also began to question if there was something he could have done to have changed the outcome of that night and to have kept his family maybe a little safer. July 3rd, 1990 was Mr. Cruel's third and said to be final attack in Canterbury, located west of Ringwood and south of Lower Plenty. The Lenaws were an English family who had moved to Australia for business reasons. The parents, Brian and Rosemary, were at a farewell party that was being thrown for them as the family were planning to move back to England in the up-and-coming days. 15-year-old Fiona and 13-year-old Nicola were left home alone while the parents attended the party. They had ordered a pizza, and not long after it arrived, the girls ate and went to bed. Just around midnight, they were awoken by an intruder. The intruder ordered Nicola to go into the other room to get her school uniform that was from the Presbyterian Ladies' College. While Nicola was doing this, he tied up Fiona. Also armed with a gun and a knife, the intruder told Fiona that Brian, her father, would have to pay 24000 Australian dollars, which is equivalent to 17924 U.S. dollars, if he wanted Nicola back. With Nicola in tow, he escaped and stole the family's rental car. He drove them about half a mile off the road where they got into another vehicle. Roughly 20 minutes later, Brian and Rosemary arrive home to find their rental car gone and the front door to their home was wide open. They made their way inside where they found poor little Fiona still tied up. Law enforcement found little to no evidence at the crime scene, which is very typical for Mr. Cruel attacks. Nicola wasn't returned as quick as Sharon Wills. 
About 36 hours into Nicola's disappearance, her father Brian held a press conference where he pleaded with Nicola's abductor to bring her back and he stated he would comply with any ransom demand they asked for. Even though the attacker made a ransom demand for money, he left little to no instructions on where to bring the money in order to get Nicola back. Law enforcement began to think that the ransom was personal, so they began to look into business deals. And about 50 hours later, outside an electricity station in Kew, Nicola was dropped off safely, dressed and wrapped in a blanket. She made her way to a nearby house and around 2 in the morning called her father. She said he stood around 175 centimeters tall, which is around 5'8". Basing this on her own height, she said he wasn't much taller than her. She was also able to give information on things law enforcement had never heard before, such as a description of the attacker's home and vehicle. While she was held in captivity, her attacker dressed her in different clothes and called her Missy, and it is said she was also forced into a neck brace attached to a bed. She was also blindfolded, but she would hear her attacker speaking out loud as if he was having a conversation with someone, but police think that this was just another red herring to make it seem like he had an accomplice and he wasn't working alone. There is one abduction that is believed to be tied to Mr. Cruel, but it is not a confirmed Mr. Cruel case. The abduction and murder of 13-year-old Carmen Chan is believed to be Mr. Cruel's work, but it was never known to if it was actually him who carried out this attack. John and Phyllis Chan were the parents to three daughters, and they would work up to 18 hours every day to support their luxurious lifestyle. They owned three restaurants in the Eltham area of Victoria, as well as some investment properties. Majority of the time, since they were working so much, John and Phyllis would not be back home until midnight or sometimes even later, and they typically would leave Carmen to watch over her younger sisters. Saturday, April 13, 1991, the lives of the Chan family were changed forever. With the parents out since it was a busy Saturday, Carmen was in charge and typically the girls would just watch the movies in Carmen's bedroom. And around 8.40 p.m., Carmen and one of her younger sisters decided to go into the kitchen to get something to eat, and this is when they were confronted by an intruder. The intruder was wearing a balaclava, a green-gray tracksuit, and he had a knife in his hand, and he claimed to the girls, I only want your money. He forced the two younger girls into Carmen's closet, and he claimed all he wanted from Carmen was for her to show him where the money was, and he made his way out of the family home with Carmen by his side. The two young girls managed to break free and called John, their father, who was at one of the family's restaurants. Law enforcement showed up soon after, and there was no way to tell children even lived there. There were no toys in the front yard, no playground, absolutely nothing. So this really, I believe, was one of those routine activity theories that I was mentioning at the beginning of the podcast. Um, I believe that truly this family was being targeted and watched, obviously, since this attacker knew they had children, and there was no way to even tell just by looking at the house that they had kids. On Phyllis's Toyota Camry that was parked all night were the words, pay back Asian drug dealers, more, more to come. Law enforcement was able to track the attacker's steps throughout the house, starting with where the cut window screen was that he had entered through and ending with the glass sliding door in the kitchen where he fled the scene. Tracking dogs were also brought to the scene where they traced him through the family's garden, their tennis court, into a vacant lot that was about 300 meters away where they believed he had stashed a getaway car. About 72 hours later, John and Phyllis held a press conference. Phyllis broke down sobbing, holding up the last outfit she saw Carmen in that night, begging and pleading for her to be returned home safely. In the following days, Carmen's family posted an encrypted letter in the newspaper with hopes that Carmen would be able to decipher it. Karen, Carmen's younger sister, wrote a letter to be published that read, Dear Carmen, I miss you a lot at time. I am very scared in the dark, and Mum and Dad miss you very much. Mimi is sick because she misses you too. Love from Karen. 
Days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months, and there was still absolutely no sign of Carmen. Realistically, the whole investigation was botched from the beginning because the police, instead of making the Chan's family home into a crime scene, they just let people come in and out as they pleased, and it was really hard for investigators to even attempt to get evidence or clues. And the police for months carefully looked through John Chan's personal and professional life to see if there were any possibility to any criminal ties, considering the message that was left on Mrs. Chan's car. Investigators soon turned their attention to Mr. Krull. They believed the writing on the Chan's vehicle was one of Mr. Krull's red herons, and the way he he handled Carmen's little sisters by binding them and demanding them into a cupboard was so eerily similar to Mr. Krull's other attacks. This launched one of the largest manhunts in Australian history, called Operation Spectrum. Tens of thousands of man-hours went into this. There was a reward of $300,000 for any information leading to the arrest of Mr. Krull or whoever did this. Almost exactly a year later, after Carmen went missing, on April 9, 1992, a man was walking his dog in Thomastown alongside Edgar's Creek when he stumbled upon a human skull in a landfill near an electricity substation at the intersection of Mahoney's Road and High Street. Dental records soon then confirmed it was the remains of Carmen. It was then confirmed that Carmen had been shot execution style in the back of the head three times with a twenty-two caliber weapon. Carmen's murder is not confirmed to be Mr. Krull, like I said, but it is believed that he was the one responsible. Phyllis believes that maybe Carmen had pulled off her blindfold and she had been the only person to see Mr. Krull's real face, so he had to get rid of her. That could be a possibility, but considering that Mr. Krull's other attacks never ended in murder and he always brought the girls back after he abducted them, it makes me think that maybe... This wasn't Mr. Krull, and maybe it was someone else that maybe was trying to be a copycat killer or a copycat criminal. But it is very possible that maybe she did take her blindfold off and she ended up seeing Mr. Krull's real face. I am going to go over some attacks that are believed to be Mr. Krull attacks but are not confirmed. In February of 1985, a 14-year-old girl was kidnapped from her family's home around 9 p.m. that night. She was tied and blindfolded before she was taken to an empty building site where she was assaulted and then released around 2 a.m. at Morabin Bowl. I probably pronounced that wrong. Five months later, a 14-year-old boy was also kidnapped around 8.25 p.m. and he was also assaulted before he was found alive in Caulfield three hours later. But this one kind of throws me off because Mr. Krull wasn't known to attack boys. He was, a no- he was known to attack little girls. But I guess he could have like switched up his MO a little bit at the end. But the first one in February totally could have been Mr. Krull. December 1985, three burglaries and three rapes occurred over four days. On December 4th, a 30-year-old woman in Warner Warnedite? I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm sure I'm not, but I'm sorry. Warnedite was attacked. February, December 6th, a woman in her 30s from Donville was attacked, and then a 34-year-old woman was attacked in her home in Bulline. In each attack, the attacker did have a gun. The woman in Warnedite was attacked by a man wearing a balaclava. He had gloves and fawn overalls on. He was said to be around 30 to 40 years old, pale complexion, and medium build with broad shoulders. Around 11.10 p.m., he walked into the victim's bedroom armed with his gun while the victim was trying to get ready for bed, and he raped her. 
The Donville attack, in this case, the attacker broke in through the back door and waited for the victim and her sister to arrive home. The sisters arrived home around 10.30 that night, and this attacker was described to be in his early 20s to 30s, clean-shaven, muscular, polite, and well-educated. He was armed with a long barrel pistol, and he raped one of the sisters, stole money from them, and ripped the phone off the wall before fleeing the scene, which we know that Mr. Cruel was known to cut phone lines and destroy phones at homes. The bullying attack occurred when she was in bed with her daughter, who was only six years old. The attacker woke her up around 11.30 p.m. He was alarmed with what was said to be a sawed-off shotgun, and the attacker was described to be in his late 20s to early 30s, slim with mousy hair, faded jeans, and a t-shirt. Some of these descriptions seem pretty different, so it's very possible that it could have been multiple different people that did these, or some of them could have been done by Mr. Cruel, but like I said, they are not known to be confirmed Mr. Cruel attacks. I found a website that had an outline profile about Mr. Cruel that somebody made, and I thought it was just so interesting, so I wanted to include it in today's podcast. So, continuing on, the profile reads, It is believed that Mr. Cruel had forensic knowledge. He would always make sure that there were no traces of him left behind by bathing victims, transporting them to drop-off locations in trash bags, making victims brush their teeth, and leaving no DNA behind, just to name a few examples of this. He was more than likely following the media when they covered his victims, and it's said that when he abducted Nicola, that he asked her, Do you think you're worth $25,000? And he seemed to really enjoy reading the stories on his crimes. He also probably videotaped his victims. It is said that when Sharon was abducted, she saw a tripod at the foot of the bed that she was being bound to. He loved using red herrings. He pretended to make phone calls during almost all his attacks. He would pretend to want money from some people. This was also assumed to be a red herring. And him spray painting the Chan's vehicle to make it look like it had something to do with Asian drug dealers. He liked to have the radio on when he was carrying out his attacks. During the attack on the Wills family, he had the radio on 3TT and he had KZFM on during the Linnells attack. Whatever lifestyle Mr. Cruel lived outside of the world of crime, he had a lot of free time and flexibility. For example, he was more than likely stalking his victims excessively to get their routines down. He used odd language like bozo, worry, wart, and use. His voice was described as deep and gruff, and he seemed to be very uneducated. The Wills family described him as not having an accent, well-spoken, and fluent in English, suggesting that he was Australian, in which this kind of contradicts with the whole he seemed uneducated thing because there are some accounts that he was, he spoke educated. He was familiar with knots that were said to be typically used by sailors, truck drivers, farmers, and fishermen. He more than likely had prior criminal history, and he was able to gain control over multiple people fairly easily. He would cut phone lines, enter in homes in very meticulous, well-thought-out ways. He was equipped with weapons at each attack, and his attacks were very well thought out and planned. His description varied from attack. The lower plenty description was an Australian man in his mid-twenties, about 5'10 to 6 foot, slim to medium build, brown hair with grayish spots, grayish bushy eyebrows, unshaven, oval face, soft hands, possibly right-handed. He was wearing blue jeans, a brown tweed sports jacket, a blue nylon waterproof zip-up jacket, blue tennis shoes, and white socks. Along with that is what was said to be a navy balaclava. The Will's description described an Australian man, 5'10 to 6 foot, thin to medium build. He possibly had a mustache. He was in his 20s to 30s, also right-handed, wearing a dark-colored boiler suit, gloves, and a dark balaclava to conceal his identity. 
The Lanilla attack described that he was just 5'10", well-built, with a slight beer belly. He also liked taking trophies from his attacks, and some items he took included an Ecuadorian shirt company parka with a fake fur collar, a gold diamond engagement ring, classical records, Rosemary Lanilla's driver's license, a Kendone beach bag, a PLC summer uniform, and a Melbourne football club beanie. And lastly, his vehicle was described as a four-door carpeted vehicle with bucket seats, clean-smelling but old, and it sometimes had trouble starting. Quickly, I'm going to go over the profile that the FBI made on Mr. Krull. On April 24, 1991, the FBI provided a profile to Victoria Police, which is as follows. He may work in close proximity to where his first and last known attack were. He is likely to be employed or involved with a school due to him using school uniforms and the timing of the attacks around school holidays. He is a functioning individual who has steady employment and someone who is usually described as a good neighbor, polite, quiet, introverted, and may involve themselves in community projects. If he were to have a partner, the attacks would have taken place while the partner is away, and some might have noticed behavior changes. There weren't really a lot of suspects in this case. They, like I said, there was little to no forensic evidence on any of these attacks, so it was almost impossible, like literally impossible. The police really have no evidence on this, so there really isn't any suspects. Some believed that the Golden State Killer was actually Mr. Krull, and the theory goes that the Golden State Killer moved to Australia to continue his killings, but that wouldn't make much sense considering that the families said he didn't have an accent, so that means that he would be Australian because to them that wouldn't be an accent. At one point, law enforcement had 76 suspects, but that was cut down to seven suspects that have committed similar crimes before. The prime suspect was former Melbourne University lecturer Brian Ankler. The lead investigator on Carmen's case, David Spray, believed Brian was their guy, and he served 10 years in jail after being found guilty of tying up and attacking six girls at knife point over a two-year period. His house was raided after Carmen's disappearance, and in his attic, they found a balaclava and a knife, but there was no forensic evidence or witnesses to tie Brian to the cases, and they have never been able to prove he had anything to do with the Mr. Cruel attacks. These attacks actually helped change the Victorian state government justice system. At the time, owning child pornography wasn't illegal, but it did become illegal after these attacks. Stalking, loitering in school areas, and sex offenders also became illegal as well. And it just blows my mind that before these attacks, these things were not illegal in Australia, or in Victoria at least, and that is just absolutely insane to me to think that owning child pornography was legal and being a sexual predator and sexual offender, like a sex offender, that that just blows my mind that that was not illegal at the time. But that is all I have on today's case. I hope you guys enjoyed and maybe learned something new about this. Be careful out there as always, and I will see you guys next time on Crime Sesh.